want to invite you to open in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 2. We began last week a series of messages. We're going to be walking through uh, not all 150 psalms, but through a variety of uh, psalms over the course of these next couple of months and during the summer uh, time. So I invite you to open to Psalm 2. I, uh, I did not have the opportunity as a kid growing up uh, to play ice hockey. Uh, I played lots of road hockey, me and my brothers, but uh, ice hockey just didn't happen. And so I didn't learn to skate fantastically well. I had skates as a kid and I learned a little bit, but, but when I became a dad of young boys, I wanted them to have that opportunity. To, uh, we, we, couldn't, we didn't have the time or the money to put them in hockey, but, but I wanted them to learn to skate and play ice hockey, a very Canadian thing, uh, to a greater degree than I did. And I thought, hey, it's Edmonton, I can make a backyard rink. And so for about a decade, every winter, I would make a backyard rink. And over the years, as the boys got bigger, the rink got bigger until it basically covered our entire backyard. And we had uh, hours of fun out there over the course of those years. Uh, often what would happen is that it would end up turning into a hockey game, me against all three of them. Sometimes Christine, their mother, my wife would join and it would be four on one. And, and I, was, I was blessed and excited about how my own skating skills improved. Uh, I, I mean, I, I could skate circles around them uh, when they were little, and even as they grew bigger, it, it, would be, it would be those four against me and basically keep away. And I would stick a handle around, and, and of course, they could clutch and grab and hack and, and all those things. There were no penalties on them. And, and we would have a great time with lots of laughter. But through the course of those years, I began to feel, perhaps naively, that my skating had really improved. I mean, I could turn and stop and, and keep away from uh, everyone in my family most of the time. And then I remember I was invited by uh, a guy here in the church to go play hockey one Saturday night, late at night, a bunch of guys playing at a local rink. And the dominant memory I have from that night of hockey, I borrowed someone's uh, hockey equipment, I went, uh, my dominant memory is them all playing hockey at the other end of the rink, sometimes coming to where I was, but me standing at the opposite blue line, just trying to breathe. And, and I realized, okay, you know, it's one thing to skate in my backyard on a little 30 by 30 uh, piece of ice, but, but getting out on a, on a real rink with guys who actually know how to skate and play hockey exposed my lack of ability to skate really well. Now, now, with that in mind, and no offense to the, to the men that I was playing hockey with, I want you to imagine this for a moment. Imagine me playing keep away with the best hockey player on the planet, Edmonton Oilers' Connor McDavid. I just imagine that for a moment. Like, as, as I think about that, I'm not even sure that if I started with the puck, I would ever touch the puck. The, the difference between his ability to stick handle and skate and mine is a ridiculous comparison. I would be utterly overmatched. This morning, as we continue our series in the book of Psalms, we come to the second Psalm, Psalm 2. And what we're going to see described here is a reality that is like what I just described to you, only, only more so. 
the psalmist will describe a reality so utterly absurd, so utterly ridiculous, that, that me playing keep away with McDavid pales in comparison to this scenario described for us in this psalm. Now before I read Psalm 2 with you, I want to remind you of a, a few things that I noted last week and note a couple things. Uh, first, I shared with you last week that Psalm 1 is an introduction to the Psalter, to the book of Psalms, that it serves to, uh, as, as a gate, a doorway into this collection of prayers and songs from the life of God's people. And, and it absolutely does that, but, but we, what we need to hear this morning is that Psalm 1 uh, introduces us to the Psalms along with Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is part 2 of this introduction. In fact, there are periods of church history, if you look back, where these two psalms, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, were actually understood to be a single psalm. Uh, one thing, a literary device you might notice if you look at it, Psalm 1 begins uh, saying, blessed is the one, carries on. Psalm 2 ends with a, 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 another beatitude, blessed are all who take refuge in him. Uh, these two blessed statements actually are what is called an inclusio. Whether you know that term or not, they bookend this material. So these psalms function together as this introduction. Psalm 1 is aimed at us individually as women and men. Before God, it puts before each of us a choice between two ways. The way of blessedness and the way of destruction. The way of, of the righteous and the way of the wicked. The, the way of blessedness is characterized by a delight in the law of God. And the way of destruction is characterized by influence from the wicked, from those who are uh, against God. In contrast to someone, Psalm 2 will be aimed more globally at the nations, at all of creation. It looks at the, the problem of, of history from a much wider uh, view. Second, as I've noted, the book of Psalms functioned as a prayer book for God's people in the life of Israel and in the church for centuries. Uh, prayers have, the, the Psalms have been uh, prayed, they've been recited, they've been sung, giving voice to God's people, helping us express ourselves in response to God uh, in, in all our experiences of life, from moments of desolation to moments of, of consolation and celebration. Every human emotion, every human experience we encounter within the book of Psalms, and the Psalms give us voice. They teach us to pray, to respond, to speak to God in response to his uh, self-revelation to us, which was first. So in opening the book of Psalms, we are, to use the language of, of the book of Hebrews, we are joining a great cloud of witnesses who have lived their lives before God, who have lived in relationship with God, who have lived as the people of God. And so we will be taught to pray. We will be taught to respond to God. Third, and I'll make a few comments moving forward on this, but I want to note the fact that there is a history to the interpretation of the Psalms. And what I mean is that, uh, like the rest of the Psalms, the Psalm we're looking at today uh, was first written many centuries ago during the Old Testament period, centuries before Jesus came on the scene. And what we're going to see here is that Psalm 2 does point to Jesus, that the New Testament authors, the apostles, recognized in Psalm 2 that it was speaking of Christ. But there was a season before Christ came where God's people had this psalm, they read this psalm, they used this psalm, they, they had an understanding of it. And so we want to look a little bit at that. We're not going to spend a lot of time doing that, but we will look at the historical 
meaning what, what this was understood as early on, uh, before we shift our focus to its Christological focus, how it points us to Christ. So what Psalm 2 does, together with Psalm 1, is it provides us with our context. It helps introduce us to the place where we need to be as we open this book of prayers. It helps us get our bearings orienting us. Over my holidays, Chrislene and I went on a number of hikes. And if you've hiked before on unmarked hikes, sometimes you'll come to a sign that has a map and it shows you where, uh, where the trail goes. And, and often, if it's a good map, a helpful map, it'll have a dot that says you are here. That's what Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 do for us. They orient us. They show us where we are. They show us the reality in which we find ourselves. Psalm 1 makes it clear that we stand before two ways. The way of blessedness and the way of destruction. Psalm, Psalm 1 does. Psalm 2 tells us that we stand before the living God and His appointed King. I invite you to follow along as I read Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This morning I want to walk through and explore this psalm under three headings. Uh, an insurrection an installation, and an invitation. Three headings, an insurrection, an installation, and an invitation. We begin under the heading of an insurrection. The psalm begins with a question, a rhetorical question. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed. Why? Why do the nations rage? We discover in this opening question, that there is a plot afoot, a plot to unseat God, the living creator of the universe, God Almighty. The way of the wicked from Psalm 1 here becomes a cosmic revolt against the reign and rule of God. Charles Spurgeon writes this, we have in these first verses a description of the hatred of human nature against the Christ of God. We see here an insurrection. We see human rebellion, uh, the human determination to be gods unto themselves, to throw off all restraint. The rebellion, of course, began back in the garden, and it is a rebellion that has persisted ever since. The psalmist declares that the nations, represented by their kings, their rulers, oppose the rule of God. The metaphor introduced to us in verse 3 is that of bondage. Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. Uh, the text speaks of, of shackles, of, of being in bondage. 
That is how the nations view the law of God. They see the ways of God, they see the commands of God as an instrument of bondage, an instrument of restriction, which stands in stark contrast to how those who are the blessed ones in Psalm 1 see it. The, the, the ones who are blessed in Psalm 1 are those who delight in the law of God, who meditate on it, who, who chew it, who, who remember, oh, oh, they, they, they're like a lion growling over its prey, just delighting in what will nurture them. That's how the blessed ones see the law of God. But the nations rage, the nations see God's law, God's command, God's reign as oppressive, as restrictive, as as holding them in bondage. This, of course, should come as no surprise to any of us. It is the human condition. It is something we all know from our own personal experiences, our own stories. The Apostle Paul makes it clear in Romans 3, quoting from the Psalms, he says, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Paul describes the human condition in those words. He says this is reality. This is men and women. Both Jew and Gentile, we are in rebellion against the God of the cosmos. The one who has created all things. The one who has created us. Over my years as a pastor, I cannot count the number of times I have had conversations with people who have said to me some form of, but I'm a good person. The scriptures confront that, that very notion and say no. No, there is simply, that, that's not the case. There, there is no one who is good. There is no one who seeks God. All are in rebellion against God. Remember the story of the rich young ruler? Jesus encounters this young man and he, he says, well, he, he comes to Jesus and, and Jesus confronts this presumably very moral man and he says to him, no one is good except God alone. There is none who is good. Apart from Christ, Apart from Christ, every single person stands in rebellion against God. That is true at an individual level, and it's true cosmically, globally. Every single person chafes at the commands of God. Every single person, apart from Christ, desires to be, seeks to live as their own God, their own authority. They want freedom from God. They don't want the bondage of His law. These opening verses not only highlight the fact of human rebellion, they offer some commentary on this fact. In a word, it is vain. It is in vain. It's ludicrous. It's foolish. It's ridiculous. It's like me playing keep away with Connor McDavid. Humanity saying, we're going to throw off God's bondage. We don't want God. We're going to overcome God. We want him gone. There is a note of astonishment in the words of the psalmist. 
Why? Why do the nations rage? Why do the nations conspire against the living God? Why? This is utterly useless, utterly senseless. James Montgomery Boyce writes this, what is God's reaction to the haughty words of these human rulers? Does God not, God does not tremble. He does not hide behind a vast celestial rampart counting the enemy and calculating whether or not he has sufficient force to counter this new challenge to his kingdom. He does not even rise from where he is sitting. He simply laughs. The issue at the heart of this psalm is the question of ultimate power, ultimate authority. And the psalmist knows he has faith that the ultimate power, that the ultimate authority is not in question. It belongs to Yahweh. It belongs to I am. James Mays writes this, the Lord reigns in the midst of a history whose powers deny it. Every nation, people, group, and organization that possesses and uses power autonomously, independent of the rule of the Lord, is theologically in rebellion. Which is why in verse 4 we read, the one enthroned in heaven laughs, the Lord scoffs at them. What is laughable is the, the human arrogance, the hubris of humanity, of nations, of rulers, of kings who throw off God's authority. That's laughable, not the suffering that will come upon them because of their rebellion, but their, their pride. For the creature to rebel against the creator is sheer, utter folly. Again, Spurgeon writes, however mad the resolution to revolt from God, it is one in which man has persevered ever since his creation, and he continues in to this very day. That is the reality in which we find ourselves. As we come to the book of Psalms, Psalm 1 placed before us this choice between the way of blessing and the way of destruction. And here in Psalm 2, it holds up before us the reality of the world we live in where we are surrounded by nations raging against God, in rebellion against God, we find ourselves living in the midst of a great insurrection. And if we are apart from Christ, we are a part of that insurrection. The second heading for our exploration is an installation. First, an insurrection, now an installation. What we discover next as we read on in the text is the response of God to the insurrection of the nations. How will the one who has created all things, who is over all things, act? What will he do? Picking things up at verse 5, we read this. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son today. I have become your father. As I noted earlier, uh, these texts, these psalms have an interpretive uh, history. That is, God's people had them knew them, understood them, used them centuries before Christ came. Now, I will show you with, why we can with great confidence, without, without any doubt, uh, proclaim that Psalm 2 is speaking of Christ, that, that it is, uh, will become so clear. But first, we need to ask the question, how was it that Israel understood this? How was it that they uh, used it? What was its significance to them in its original context? Now, though there is no superscription to Psalm 2, that is, some psalms, if you read through, it'll say a psalm of David or a psalm of Asaph or whatever. There'll be a superscription. Psalm 2 doesn't have that. Yet, according to the, uh, James and, sorry, uh, Peter and John in 
the book of Acts, they attribute Psalm 2 to David, King David, who wrote many, not all of, but many of the Psalms. So if David wrote it, it, it seems reasonable to conclude, as many scholars have, that it was written for the coronation of the installation as king of his son Solomon or another successor who would follow later. Now, a couple reasons why this makes sense. In the ancient world, the rulers were often recognized as standing in special relationship with God or with the God. Certainly in Israel, the king stood in a unique place in relationship to God as God's regent, if you will, representing God's reign, God's rule on earth in the nation. That was true in Israel. And as such, kings were often referred to as son of God. For example, in 2 Samuel 7, we read this, speaking of David, uh, to David about his son Solomon. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. So that's common language to speak of rulers. Now with that said, the suggestion that this is from a coronation of Solomon or another uh, king in Judah, though that remains, uh, I think, a good possibility, there are others who fail to see that situation uh, based on what is described here. The, the time of Solomon's coronation, his installation as king, there were not all these mutinous nations rebelling against him and his reign. And so that uh, doesn't fit. Some scholars recognize that and go, well, hang on, that doesn't make sense. Uh, but, but nonetheless, I think its original context, whether for Solomon or another king, and despite the fact that, that reality was less than what was pictured here, uh, this was likely used and intended and understood as an inauguration, as, as a psalm uh, for a king when they were being inaugurated. Perhaps Solomon, perhaps someone who would follow, who would function as God's representative, as God's regent in God's kingdom, the nation of Israel. Israel was a theocracy. They were a, a, a nation under God. We, we live in a different time, a different situation. But regardless what will soon become clear, what soon became clear to them, to Israel, was that no human king fulfilled all that was described here. Solomon's reign ended in apostasy. And if we follow the reign of future kings, we recognize that Judah steadily declined until finally in 586 AD, they were dragged into exile by Babylon, leaving the promises of Psalm 2 unfulfilled. And consequently, in years that followed, this psalm began to take on an eschatological, that is, a future orientation. That is, it is it's not about a king we've had in the past. It's about a future king who will come, and this will become true. It, it took on this eschatological future significance. God's people began to see within this psalm uh, this expectation of a future king, a future uh, anointed one, Messiah. Messiah simply means anointed one who would fulfill all that they witness in this psalm. Now, when we get to the New Testament, what becomes undeniable is that the church came to see this psalm, Psalm 2, as speaking about none other than Jesus Christ himself, that Jesus is the fulfillment of what Psalm 2 pointed to, that Jesus is, in fact, the one that Psalm 2 bears witness to. In Acts 4, Peter and John declare this, 
You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Later in Acts chapter 13, Paul says this, We tell you the good news. What God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second Psalm, You are my son, today I have become your father. This psalm, Psalm 2, is, is quoted often throughout the New Testament with the clear recognition that Psalm 2 speaks of Jesus. That it is pointing to Jesus, that it is fulfilled in Jesus. The church recognized that Psalm 2 pointed ahead to Christ, that he is the enthroned king of Psalm 2, that he is the son of the Father, that the nations will be his inheritance, that the ends of the earth will be his possession, that he will rule over the nations with a rod of iron, that all of this speaks of and is fulfilled in Christ, that this is Jesus. He is the conquering Messiah. He is the defeater of every power raised against God. He is the ideal and long-awaited king, the anointed one. And what the kings of the earth sought to prevent, namely the rule, the reign of God, has already occurred in the coming of Christ. Listen to what Peter and John say. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. It did not happen like Israel expected. It didn't happen as the disciples expected. No. Israel, the people of God, were expecting a messianic warrior king who would come and, and defeat and crush the nations, those in rebellion against Yahweh, against I Am. That's what they were expecting, but Christ came. God enthroned him. He installed him as king over every king. And he did so in Jerusalem, in Zion, on a cross. It was through his life and his death and his resurrection that Jesus was enthroned. It was through his life and death and resurrection that D Jesus defeated the nations that raged against him. The cross is his installation as Messiah, as the anointed one, as the promised one, as the one through whom God's rule would be made real and visible and in our world. We turn to the third heading for this morning's exploration. We've looked at an insurrection. We've looked at an installation, and now I want to look with you at an invitation. There is language in this psalm that may strike us as a bit unnerving. The one enthroned in heaven laughing, scoffing, uh, rebuking in his anger, terrifying in his wrath. In verse 9 of Christ, you will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. These are not warm, fuzzy images. This language is a bit menacing, to be sure. But here within these words, here within this psalm, we encounter grace. We're confronted by grace. Look with me, verse 10. 
Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction for his wrath can flare up in a moment. What is this but a gracious word of warning and a gracious invitation? An invitation to surrender to the one that they have hated. An invitation to come and serve the one they have resisted. An invitation to come and love the one who gave himself for them. The enemies of God are urged. They are beckoned to come. Come and receive grace. Come and receive mercy. Come and receive life. This is extended to the nations, to the ends of the earth. Verse 8, look, ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance. All are invited All are invited. God's enemies, the nations that rage against him, are invited to come. His enemies are are part of his inheritance. Come and serve the Lord. Come and kiss the Son. He is reaching out his nail-pierced hands to the world that has hated him, to the nations that have rebelled against him. And he says, come, come, come. To be sure, one day he will come and he will judge Those who do not bow will one day be broken to pieces under his judgment. But today is the day of grace. Today the mutinous nations are offered their only hope. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Not a word of judgment here, but a word of gracious invitation. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Offered to the kings who rebel, the nations in their resistance, in their insurrection, come. Blessed are all who come. Blessed are all who take refuge in the appointed king, in the Messiah, in Christ. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. If you're not a believer in Christ, I want to speak to you for a moment. This is a word of gracious invitation to you. A word of warning, but a word of gracious invitation. The God who made you, the God who stands over the cosmos, invites you. Jesus, the king over all kings, reaches out his nail-pierced hands to you and says, Come. Come receive my love. Come receive my mercy. Come receive my grace. Come find refuge in me. I implore you. Lay down your sword. Surrender to the one who loves you and gave himself for you. Apart from faith in Christ, apart from surrender to Christ, you remain in rebellion. You remain resisting his rule. You want to throw off the shackles of God's commands. And I want to say to you, like Psalm 1 said to us last week, that the blessed ones are those who delight in God's law, those who recognize that God's law is good for us, that that God has created us to look like him, and when we submit to, surrender to his his word, to his will, when we, we obey him, we become more who we were created to be. We become fully human, the more Christ-like we become. And so I urge you, wherever it is you are looking for meaning and satisfaction and joy, you will not find it until you surrender to Christ. And as long as you remain in rebellion against him, seeking to throw off the shackles of the God who made you, you will find yourself under his approaching judgment. But he today says it is a day of grace and he invites you to come. Come and find refuge in him. Come, receive his love. Receive the gift of life. You can pray this morning. 
Your life can be transformed in a moment. This is repentant beliefs to Jesus. I, I turn from my rebellion and I surrender my life to you. Lead me in this new life. Show me what that means. You don't have to have all the answers. You simply need to bow your knee before Christ and find refuge in him. To those of you who are believers, I want to say three things. Three things that I think are important for us to take away from this psalm. First is a reminder that that we are called as those who are redeemed in Christ, as those who have found refuge in Christ, we are called to live surrendered lives before Christ, our Redeemer, before the Son of God, the one installed as King. Verse 11, serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. What is this talk of fear and trembling? I mean, this is not about instilling fear in us. This is not about instilling insecurity in us that we, we go, oh, I, I screwed up, I sinned yesterday. Like, am I in that we're, we're, we're always frightful and, and, and worried? This isn't about being spiritually insecure. We're not saved by our performance we're not initially brought into the kingdom because we cleaned ourselves up and we don't remain as God's children because we managed to perform at the necessary level. We are redeemed by grace. We are saved by grace. We are kept by grace. But we are called to live as surrendered, live surrendered lives. Salvation is a gift freely received by all who take refuge in him. And those who are saved, those who are redeemed, those who find refuge in Christ then live by his grace, surrendered lives before God. Gordon Fee writes this, one does not live out the gospel casually or lightly, but as one who knows what it means to stand in awe of the living God. Do we recognize that the God of the universe, that Christ, his son, came out of love for us and laid down his life for you and for me? Are we moved to worship? Are we moved to awe? Do we stand before him in awe? and wonder because when we do our lives are transformed by his power at work in us his grace we live before him in fear and trembling not not terror and insecurity but fear and trembling before an awesome holy god we are called brothers and sisters to live surrendered lives to god almighty second we ought to recognize within this psalm the great missionary challenge for today Look at verse 8. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance. Christ's inheritance includes the nations. The nations that rage against him. Harry Ironside, longtime pastor of Moody Bible Church in Chicago, wrote this. It is the will of God that his son should have a great inheritance out of the heathen world, the godless Gentiles. Our assignment is to carry the message of God's decree and Christ's rule to them. It is to proclaim the rule of King Jesus. We are called to be his ambassadors, to bear witness to the nations. Now, listen to me. We are called to bear bear witness to the nations. That is, nations that rage against him, nations that hate him, nations that seek to overthrow him. We will go to those who hate him and hate us for loving him. And that will mean difficulty. That will mean rejection. But we need to hear this call. Oh, that we would embrace it. Oh, that we would be women and men who fall on our faces before God and cry out for his inheritance of the nations. For an outpouring of his grace in our world. 
his outpouring of grace on the nations who are in rebellion against him. He says, ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance. Remember Jesus, the moment of his ascension, he said to his disciples, all authority, all authority on heaven and earth, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. He is king of kings. He is Lord over all the cosmos, over every nation. He says, all authority has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. Christ gives us that call that we would live as his ambassadors in the midst of a context where the nations rage against him, that we would proclaim the hope that is found in him. Blessed are those who take refuge in him, that we would go to those who hate him, those who seek to rebel against him and proclaim Christ as their refuge. Come to him. Come to the one who is your refuge. Third, and perhaps this is the most significant thing for us to take away today in light of our political reality today. And it's this. We must recognize two important facts. That we live in hostile territory and that Jesus is king over all kings. I believe that we are witnessing the decline of Western civilization as we have known it. I see a breakdown of democracy I see an assault on Judeo-Christian values. I see an erosion of many of the freedoms that we have become accustomed to having. And I don't know whether God will arrest this progress, this decline, and, and reverse things. But I look and I see a decline of, of the Western world that we know that things are getting worse. And I don't know that that will be stopped and reversed. Alistair Begg writes this, Christians are increasingly going to be seen as different and not in a good way. We are increasingly going to have to choose between obedience and comfort. The next decades will not bring apathy to the gospel, but antagonism. And that's okay. After all, that has been the reality for most of God's people through most of history. Do we realize that? Do we realize that what we have grown accustomed to in the West here in Canada, we, we talk of religious freedom, we talk of, of rights, that that is foreign to most of our brothers and sisters through most of history, and the church has carried on just fine. The rule of Christ has carried on just fine. In fact, where the church has been persecuted, where Christianity, has, the people have sought to stomp it out in rebellion against God, the church has flourished the most. And in the West, it seems largely that the church is asleep. And it's so easy for us to get upset because we're losing freedoms. We're losing our rights. And I just want to say, we live in a hostile world where the nations rage against God, yet Christ remains on the throne. We face the temptation to worry and to even panic as we see the decline of our civilization, the erosion of rights and freedoms. But why should we? Why should we panic? Alistair Begg continues, too much of the public face of evangelicalism is characterized by the angry venting or panicking rather than prayerful, humble, calm, and confident belief in a sovereign God who is in control. Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? In vain. Why? The nations rage. The nations conspire. The nations plot against God in vain. It is useless. It is pointless. They are bound to fail. 
Christ is king and he will conquer. His purposes will be fulfilled. We need not panic. We need not worry. Whatever may come, Christ is on the throne and the future is secure. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Bruce Walkie and James Houston write this in their commentary. In Israel's hymn book, this psalm functions to encourage Israel, that is God's people, with the assurance that their king will win the battle. I want to close with a story. In the 1920s, a man from Scotland, Lord Reith, was instrumental in the founding of the BBC. He became their first director. And years later, decades later, in the 60s, at a production meeting, a young BBC producer, this was a time when secularism, the wave of secularism had swept over Britain, was impacting the BBC, and a young producer stood up and said that the BBC didn't have to continue anymore with their religious programming. He said, people are no longer interested in religion, and the church has become increasingly obsolete Lord Reith, who stood six foot six, told the young man to sit down. And he stood up and he spoke these words. He said, the church will stand at the grave of the BBC. The church will stand at the grave of the BBC. The church will stand at the grave of, of corporations, of news outlets, of nations, of rulers. The church will stand. Blessed are those who take refuge in Christ. The church will stand. Jesus is king over kings, over every nation, and he knows no rival. I don't know if you know this, but on the, on the peace tower in the Canadian Parliament buildings, engraved in stone, are these words from Psalm 72, 8. May he have dominion from sea to sea. Oh, that that would be our prayer, that we would recognize that Christ does, that he is now king of kings, that he is, he is the one who has dominion over all, not only Canada, but over the nations, and that even when the nations rage, we need not fear. Brothers and sisters, we must open our eyes to the glorious truth proclaimed in Psalm 2. Already true, already Christ has dominion. And one day, what is already true, we will see with our eyes. We will see before us. May our prayer be that Christ would make the nations our inheritance, that Christ would make Canada our inheritance, that we would surrender to him and that we would live as his missionary people in the midst of this hostility, in the midst of the nations raging with a bold confidence that was rooted in him. We would live finding refuge in him. Amen. As we conclude our gathering this morning, 
Let's conclude remembering that we go as God's redeemed people, called and empowered to make Jesus known in all the earth, even during COVID-19. Listen to the words of the scriptures, Matthew 5, 14 to 16. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see the good deeds, your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven.
close in a word of prayer. And then for those who are on Zoom, I invite you to stick around. I'll join you in a moment. And anyone who is with us on Facebook or our website, invite you to jump over to Zoom. You can use my number that was on the screen earlier to text me. If you don't have that link, we'd love to share that with you and just be able to interact together. Let's close our time with a word of prayer. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you for this reminder of the reality in which we live, that we live as those who have found refuge in you, Jesus, and that that changes everything. Lord, as we see the nations around us raging against you and your ways, Lord, fill us not with fear. Fill us not, guard us from feeling animosity. Lord, may we rather have hearts of grace that we would be used by you to offer your invitation to all that they would come to you, that they would serve you, that they too would find refuge in you. Jesus, we pray, use us, give us boldness and courage. Use us, Lord Jesus, to point others to your dominion in our country, your dominion over this land from sea to sea, to proclaim you as king. Give us joy, give us confidence, Lord Jesus, that is rooted in you. We pray this in your name, for your glory. Amen.